I think the colour wheel's my my god, really. You know, that's where that's where I refer every every decision I need to make uh, in the process of painting goes back to that that basic principle. Hi, and welcome to episode 83 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and I'm very pleased that the first guest of this year is Philip Wolfhagen, one of Australia's most famous and respected landscape painters. We recorded this conversation in mid-November in Philip's studio and his farm in Longford, Tasmania. On my way there from Sydney, the landscape I could see from the plane as I flew over New South Wales and Victoria was dry and brown, and I didn't know it then, but a few weeks later, over 10 million hectares of Australian bushland would go up in flames, taking with it lives, homes and wildlife. Fires are still burning in Australia, and I think the beginning of this decade will always be marked internationally by this terrifying and heartbreaking event. I know many of us are hoping this is the year where we can work together to finally do something significant about climate change. There's clearly the will for action, so let's all get on board and run with it. And I just wanted to acknowledge the huge outpouring of support from the community, including our wonderful art community. So many artists and galleries have raised money for our firefighters and wildlife organisations through auctioning and donating their artworks. It is so heartwarming to see. So with all that in mind, I suppose it's fitting that the first episode of this year is with an artist whose intention is to venerate the landscape of this great country of ours. In contrast to my flight to Tasmania, driving to Philip Wolfhagen's farm from Launceston was a dreamlike experience. Unlike New South Wales, there were green hills and farmlands rolling down to a plain with a mountain range in the distance. If it had been dusk, I would have felt I was driving through a Wolfhagen painting because capturing the landscape surrounding his home is a large part of Philip's practice. And in particular, he beautifully captures that moment of twilight, often with a hint of melancholy through his expert use of colour and superb application of paint. Philip has had over 40 solo shows. He's won the Wynn Prize and the Lloyd Rees Art Prize, amongst other awards, was highly commended in last year's Hadley's Art Prize and has been awarded the Centenary Medal for Contribution Made to the Arts. A major survey of his work travelled the country in 2013 and 14, and his paintings are held in nearly every major state and national public art institution in Australia and, of course, in many private and corporate collections. All the paintings we talk about are on the website, talkingwithpainters.com. Thanks to those of you who sent questions on Instagram. I managed to ask two, so thank you to Emmanuel and Verity for those. Philip grew up on a farm in central Tasmania where his family were wool growers, and that's where we pick up our conversation. And so you grew up with lots of sheep, I presume? Yes, it was largely sheep. There were a few cattle and... Um, not much cropping. So did you sh- did you sort of watch the shearing? And oh, stuff? absolutely. Right. I still I still find um, you know we've got a few sheep here. I just love shearing and watching shearers. I find it really hypnotic. Yes, yeah, so I feel that's really part of my uh, part of my life that I like to keep alive. Mm. And what, so, what are your memories of um, art as a child? Like, did you did you were your family artistic? Uh, yes, in different ways. My my mother's mother was um, 
an amateur painter, uh, and she, but she was a much better writer. She had three novels published, and she wrote lots of short stories for Blackwoods magazine and those funny old British journals. And she was very, you know, very encouraging and certainly um, encouraging our imaginative lives immensely. Mm. And I had a cousin who was really gifted at learning painting and uh, I just felt totally inept as a, as a little boy trying to learn to oil paint and I quickly just abandoned that and drew. Yeah. And which is why when I went to art school I majored in printmaking. Mm. Um, I mean, I just loved the whole process um, of printmaking. I haven't made prints uh, since of any significance. I'd like to. I keep procrastinating about it. Um, oh, so you do, you do, you're still interested in that? Oh, I love prints. And I keep thinking, you know, how would I translate some of my ideas now into printmaking? And mm. I think that I, what I recognise is the, the, um, the influence printmaking and those thought processes have had on my painting, particularly my colour mixing. In what way? Uh, well, the, you know, using um, a minimal palette, mm. and to use a really minimal palette is to just use three colours, the primaries, and make everything from those, which is pretty much how I paint, with the addition of um, a number of different violets, because I find violet is an incredibly um, useful way of modifying other colours. I mean, you add violet to a green and it just gets more mysterious and beautiful. Or, you know, to, to kill yellow. I mean, I, basically, I, I think the colour wheel's my, my god, really. You know, that's where, that's where I refer every, every decision I need to make uh, in the process of painting goes back to that, that basic principle. So do you find that your approach to colour is quite analytical in that way? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think you have to be. You have to be. I mean, um, you know, I always think, you know, that uh, those people who work in the paint shop uh, and you bring in a colour and you ask them to match it, I mean, that's... That's a real skill, oh, yeah. and I've always admired that. And I think uh, perhaps if if all th things go badly for me, I could do that <laughs> down at Bunnings. <laughs> well, you know that's interesting because I remember doing a colour course once where it was just the primaries and black and white, mm -hmm. and we were given a colour, a swatch, and you had to make it out of that. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely gobsmacked that you could do it. Yes, you'd be better off without the black, in my opinion. Really. Yes, yeah, and the black um, is just unnecessary. If you use transparent colours, if your primaries are perfectly transparent, no body colour, they intermix uh, infinitely. And, um, I mean, the black that I use is just three primaries, and I, I mix it in advance. You know, often um, I mix it once for the year and I put it into, you know, refillable tubes and I know exactly what's in that black and I know if I need to tweak it um, a little this way or that way on the spectrum um, it's really easy to do that by just adding a little more of ultramarine or alizarin or um, cobalt yellow which mm. is the only yellow I use. Oh right. Which is yeah. oh, just the most marvellous colour because it uh, acts as a secative, it dries, dries other colours. It dries on the palette in a few hours actually. Oh, right. Whereas a lot of oils, you know, 
seem never to dry. It's dry. It'll be there forever. Yeah. Oh, so that will assist in the drying time mm. for if you've added that to another mm, colour. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. The raw umber has a similar effect. Yeah. Yeah. And do you? But I've heard you don't use many earth colours. Uh, well, I was thinking about that this morning, actually, in advance of this conversation. Um, I only you can really draw the line at the horizon for me. Above that, you're talking about light and atmosphere, and that's all spectral for me. What do you mean by spectral? But, well, the colours of the spectrum, mm. the light spectrum. Um, uh, Sir Isaac Newton gave seven colours just simply because it fitted the musical octave, which uh, was in a bit of an obsession through the, through the Enlightenment period and the Romantic period, actually. But uh, so, yeah, really, there's only three colours and a few in the secondaries in between mm. um, that you could call spectral. And when, once you get into the landscape, then I really do need a green, um, green and uh, umbers and burnt sienna and, you know, all those uh, iron oxides are indispensable to me then. Right. But, um, well, you can, I can do it. I can do it with just with, um, with the, the paired back primaries and um, but it's a cold it's a colder looking effect oh okay and uh and not only that actually uh, most of all it's time consuming i just spend all day mixing trying to mix a color mm. uh, and mm. in the end you just get frustrated and why am i doing this when you know i can use a thalo green for instance and add uh, which is a very very powerful green yes and it, you know you only need a pinprick of that to a tablespoon of raw umber and you get a beautiful green and mars violet is also critical to my palette in the in in when i'm dealing with landscape elements trees and bushes that are dark somber greens and is that through experimentation that you've come to those yes oh, absolutely absolutely i mean i i didn't consider myself a colorist uh, at all and i didn't have any confidence with colour. So my earliest paintings were really, really minimal and kind of idiosyncratic colours. I'd just use raw umber, um, green earth and burnt sienna and cobalt blue and that's about it oh, really? you know, for those early uh, big cloudscapes from the early 90s when I was in Sydney. And um, yes, I, I, I haven't really mapped the trajectory of my, my palette, but... Um, Yes, I've been working in the way that I am now for for a long for a long time. Mm. Well, talk, talking about the early nineties, um, I was astounded because I think you you went to well, you went to the University of Tasmania, but then you went to Sydney for a few years and did a postgraduate yeah. degree. But that was like in nineteen ninety, and then when I was looking researching, I realised that the National Gallery of Australia acquired one of your works in nineteen ninety one. Yes, that was that was one of my. Uh, works for my Sydney College of the Arts submission. You're kidding. Yeah. The National Gallery acquired that. Uh, yes. How did that come to their attention? Um, because I, 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 had a, I had a show in a commercial gallery. Yeah. Um, uh, just before, I can't remember whether it was before my assessment, so I had to, <laughs> I had to say to people, well, yes, you can buy it, but I need it back for, for, um, for assessment at the end of the year. So I'd have to go back and check my dates, but I do remember that being a, a problem. <laughs> <laughs> a good problem to have. A good problem. Um, it helped that the gallery that I was with um, no longer exists. Um, 
now, but I mean, they were very well connected with, um, particularly with Canberra. And, uh, and so the curators uh, would, you know, when they came up to Sydney and did this, the gallery rounds, would go to this gallery and, um, you know, I fell on my feet really in that way. I made um, fortunate choices with my relationships with gallerists. Mm. Well, can we talk a bit more about um, your work and in particular another work that I really love that's in the National Gallery as well? Uh, that was acquired a couple of years ago. It was from 2007, called A Litany of Vapours. Ah, yes. It is monumental, <laughs> yes. huge. Well, it was painted particularly for the uh, inaugural exhibition at the Samstag Museum oh, in, in uh, South Australia, in Adelaide. Oh, okay. And I'd just been, I'd just come back from um, my first trip overseas for a long, long time because we had young children. Um, and I did a show at the Australian Embassy in Washington. This is all through my, um, through Dick Bett, who was my gallerist here in Hobart. And uh, yes, yeah, so I'd, I'd seen all uh, the abstract expressionists, uh, you know, at the National Gallery in Washington and, um, and in New York. It was just a fantastic mm. trip. And I came back uh, very energised and, and then I, I knew I had, already, already knew I had this um, task ahead of me. Well, it's a great painting. I'll just I'll quickly describe it so the listeners know what we're talking about. It's a, it's a seven-panelled work. It's huge. It's two metres high. And when it's actually, um, uh, you know, hung, it's over nine, nine metres wide. And it is this amazing a gathering of clouds. So most of the work is the horizon line's quite low um, and there's this gathering of clouds, cloud formations, which in the... There's a crescendo in the middle where in the middle panel is this just sort of the light hits this amazing cloud formation. How did that come about, that work? Like, how, I'm particularly interested in the composition, actually. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so that has a long um, lineage in my, my work and, and obsession with Colin McCann, actually. Ah, oh, right. The New Zealand painter. New Zealand painter, yes. So when I was at Sydney College of the Arts, I did a lot of reading on McCann and um, I always loved his Northland panels. I just like the way that you can explore different aspects to one place through a number of panels, and it's kind of more like a piece of music in a way too, that it has movements. You know, you can have a, a slow movement, a fast movement, and make a, a sort of visual experience that has those qualities. Mm. Um, so, so is that why you, you do it in panels? Because you, you, you often do multi-panelled works. I do, yes. Is that part of the reason that um, it, you want this different Yes, yes, there's way? that. There's also, I think, um, conveying a passage of time it, within one work mm. uh, has always been, you know, a, a significant reason for, for employing, you know, devices like that. Or for many years, I actually had images split within the canvas. In fact, the first painting you mentioned uh, that was purchased, collected by the National Gallery, it is split within the image and within the canvas. So it's not two canvases, but it's two images on one canvas. Ah, oh, right, yes. And I quite enjoyed that sort of um, bilateral symmetry. Mm. And, and, you know, remember, it was, you know, postmodernism was the thing when we were at art school in the 1980s. You know, we were, we were always quoting things. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this had the sort of a book-like feel, too, that you were opening 
a book with a with a spine mm. and again the the subject matter was nearly always clouds in my early work and and you needed the bit of yang in the composition right. to make it work what rather than it being a straight depiction of clouds you mean yes another uh, the classic um postmodern device of you know reminding the viewer that you're looking at a painting mm not a window onto the world, yeah. that it's a, this is a representation of something. Um, and I, in many ways, there's still little uh, vestigial things in my work that still do that, like the unfinished edges. Yeah, and, I was just thinking that, mm. yeah, to remind you that it's a painting. Yes, and there's also a, um, an aesthetic delight in having the ground coming through the paint mm. and, the, and often the ground's deliberately... Um, uh, complementary to the to the main palette, you know, uh, my violet blue skies in in the most recent big sky paintings, the exaltations, there was a sort of a citrusy yellow ground that sort of complemented the violets and heightened the colour, and so it also sets up, you know, sort of vibrations in your eye. It's a bit like you know, I don't know if if you've studied music, but you know. The, the, the use of intervals, mm. certain intervals heighten one another. Yeah. And uh, it makes the, the, the sound exciting rather than a single so, note. Yeah, I know music is a, a very important part of your work. Not Yes, I, I, I don't know. I certainly don't feel I'm sufficiently wise about music to, to say anything meaningful about it yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> But you have music playing all the time. Actually, one of my listeners, I did on Instagram, I sent out an uh, invitation to my listeners if they had any questions. And one of the questions was, what music do you listen to in the studio? That's, that's changed a lot over, over time. I, um, I grew up with a lot of Baroque music. Uh, my stepfather is uh, Belgian, French-speaking Belgian, and brought that whole cultural Thing into our household and so you know uh, a lot of um, vocal music too oh, uh, yeah. and so you know then and then I guess I've discovered Bach and um, Bach's cantatas mm. and so very classical music well that's considered early music what do you mean well that's early music Bach's early classicals really um, Beethoven on, onwards. Oh, is it? Yes. And so you do know more than you think. <laughs> yeah, so, I didn't you know, know that. Yeah, so classic, classical music, the uh, classical period begins, you know, with um, at the end of the Baroque. Oh, okay, right. And, of course, there's never any clear lines. People like um, Beethoven composed uh, more cl uh, classical music before they sort of morphed into Romanticism. Okay. So yeah. what, what effect do you think, like, what effect do you think listening to that music has on your, when you're painting? Well, for early on when I lived and worked in Sydney and um, even to a certain extent here in the local township where my studio was, it was a way to block out the outside world, the sounds of the outside world in mm. a way, and create my own um, silence. Um, but I use it as a just to heighten my sense of the moment. And because I mean, painting, sometimes painting takes a lot of courage. You know, I can go for weeks where I walk past my palette table and, and I just, I'm repelled 
from it, you know. I just can't start. It's a standoff. <laughs> and I think, oh, no, I'll just go out and weed that uh, bed over there. That's what I'll do today. <laughs> um, but then finally I will put something on music-wise. Music I'll put something on that really makes me... Oh, and sometimes it's on the radio. I actually start painting because something's on the radio that um, I want to listen to and I want to do something while I'm listening to it. And sometimes I, you know, come in sideways and start painting just uh, like that. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm shocked at the end of the day that what I've achieved that I didn't expect to. Mm. Um, so in a way, it's like a distraction sort of, almost. Some ways, yes. Yes, so it makes me less self-conscious. Mm. Mm. I think that's probably what it is. The less I'm thinking about what I'm doing, the better I am. Yeah. Is that also uh, when you're mixing colours as well? Do you? Think? No. No. <laughs> no, that's... Getting back to your word, analytical. If I get one step wrong, I can end up with a mound of paint, you know, um, on the on the on the um, glass slab there that's unusable. Really? Mm. Actually, talking about that issue, there is. I, I I did read or I heard on one of the videos actually that there is a you have a colour, sort of a base colour, a basic hue that you use that is, is one of the colours that you mm. always have on standby that mm. is, is sort of a, you have a recipe for. Yes. Um, how did you come about to that? And have you been using that for a long time? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't matter now. I don't know. I don't know how this, this colour, and um, which is red, you know, red, blue and yellow, and I call it nimbus because that's the colour of the clouds. Yeah. And that's just a nice warm grey that I know is like a control in it. If, I, you know, it was a science experiment, you know, that's my control. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you start from that and move and then move. Yes. I mean, that'll be, if I'm starting a new cloud um, composition, if I've got some, a, new, uh, a new idea, that's where I begin. And sometimes it looks too green and sometimes it looks too yellow and, you know, and so I add more violet or, or oh, whatever yeah, yeah. and then if you get if you sometimes you can go way off on a tangent and work for a, a whole fortnight and come in and, and realize that everything you've done is too pink or too something and you've got to completely re review your palette so would you in that case would you re rework a whole work oh yes Oh, really? Oh, yes. I, you know, I work over and over. I, I try to do that less, and I think I do it less because I'm smarter <laughs> <laughs> now than I was. Yeah. Um, and also I, I, I feel that it's, um, you, you can create structural problems in paintings by overloading them too much. Mm. And um, so I tend to be more ruthless now. If, I, if something's not working and it's overloaded, I'll unpick it and burn it which is hard to do because I think all that beautiful linen that is going up in flames. Also, rather than scrape back, oh, or it's beyond could, scraping you back. You could, but, you know, really, um, that's a, uh, a labour-intensive and smelly and, you know, you'd have to use heat, really, and then you'd have all sorts of other, you know... Well, it's, yeah, because it's, dry, it's dried. Yeah, yeah. So talking about that, like, I mean, would you return to a work like a year later, for example? Oh, always. Oh, always? Always. Oh, okay. Yes. So, so say for your recent show at Philip Bacon, 
There was a bit of painting in that show that I probably did in 2009. Really? Yeah, there's little things that, um, you know, little like an executed cloudscape that I really love, and then it just sits there with nothing beneath it. It just stops at the mountains, the, the blue line of hills that's another sort of given in my work. And uh, it just hangs on the wall, and I often use it as a... Um, as a control for other works I'm working on. Like I'll use it and I'll daub colours onto it to match them. Uh, and then I'll go, no, this time to resolve this and, and send it out into the world. And so I'll resolve the, the landscape and off it goes. So that's how, how sometimes you can have um, very, very much earlier pieces of work in an exhibition than, um, than the rest. And the other thing is too, you know, I can... Um, have an idea and execute it, and then um, I doubt, I have doubts about its um, value or uh, its importance. So I slide it into the racks, but I haven't quite got the courage to cover it over either. <laughs> and so it can sit there, and then they come out and they go, Yes, now that I was, I was onto something there, so let's push it a bit further. Mm. And then it can also get parked back in the racks again. You know, some, some paintings are, um, I often think, you know, some should never have been made or even started. And then some paintings just have a life of their own and uh, uh, started and finished in a very short space of time. Yeah, and there's no way you can, the, the, the older I get, the more experienced I get, the wiser I get, the, I still can't predict oh, right. or control. Yeah the destiny of what I'm doing, of starting out. But that's, well, that's something I just accept. I don't, I don't fret over it. Well, I suppose the, fa the fact that you've got the, these ones in the racks must be reassuring. Yes, it is a bit like that. It's like if I come into the studio after a break and I, um, I don't know what to do, often I'll pull the, all the old things out and have a look at them and mm. push and pull, you know, mm. and see if I can do anything. And then... Slowly I'll take off in, in whatever direction I'm destined to go in. Mm. Well, what I'm really interested in, because we were looking at your journal earlier and it's just the most fascinating document. How do you use those that journal? Um, it's particularly useful if, again, uh, you know, because there are times when you, you take a long break from painting for one reason or another, you know, the summer holidays, mm. and come back in in, in February... Usually it's the first rainy day that I come into the studio because I can't be outside. Um, and, uh, you know, I sit down and have a coffee and read back through my journal and it somehow takes me back to where I was in December last year or November whenever I left the studio. Mm. And um, it, makes it, it makes it much easier to start again. Mm. So what, it, do, what do you write about when you write in that? I mean, there are also thumbnails also, which are the most exquisite thumbnails I've ever seen. And they're thumbnails of completed works. They're not actually thumbnails of plans for works. No, occasionally there are, there are loose sketches, but um, they're usually for palette notes. So if I've made a change to my palette and I need to record it really carefully so that I can get back to it more easily, that's like a map. Yeah, right. Um, then um, they're invaluable, those pages. The rest of it's more documentary, I would say. Mm. You know, that I'm... If it's not noted in my journal, then I never made it. You know, I never did paint it. 
It's like proof. Yes. Yeah, if it's not mentioned there, um, it didn't exist. Literally? Yes. Right. So every work is mentioned yeah. in the journal. Yeah. And then you, you, you actually, I mean, we were looking at a page earlier where you actually give sort of emotional views on, on yeah, the painting. I do. <laughs> well, I, I do. And um, I, I mean, I love writing. I, I love uh, when I'm when I'm writing well, it's a really lovely feeling, but it's not very often. And there are, you know, are, are there are pages in the journal that I've painted out with white wall paint, you know, because I just hated my grammar or, you know, because sometimes <laughs> your brain just doesn't fire on those, on that side. And uh, But there's, on, the, on, the, on the point of the colour notes, at the bottom of one of the pages, you had a gradation of, of colour uh, that you were using and... Can you explain how you sort of go back to that again at a later point? Uh, well, yes, that um, gradation that you mentioned is basically just a, a hue with varying amounts of white. Um, and it just that it's very interesting because when you try to mix a colour, it's much easier if you've got it in, um, in a tonal gradation because if you mix a lot of white with a, with a tiny bit of tint, it really exposes whether it's right or wrong. It's, you know, it's much harder to mix. You can't uh, mix a dark, a match dark tones accurately without adding a lot of white. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, because well, you can't see my, it. That's you my can't see yeah, the I can't color. see what's in it. So it's just easier to, to match colour to because, um, you know, oh, that's the, interesting. there'll be the right, the, the right tone will be in the gradation somewhere for what I've mixed on the glass. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's, so you can go back into a painting that you were working on, basically. Mm. And you, it was interesting because you were showing me how you had, had sort of daubed on top of that gradation a bit of the colour that you would later mixed again. Mm. And you were saying, oh, no, see, that's a little bit too violet or something. I thought, oh, God, I can't see. <laughs> well, the, 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 the tricky thing is that paint, you mix it, but whilst it's sort of wet, if you like, um, it's one colour and then you walk away and come back the following day and it's totally changed. Yeah, right. Darkened, as opposed to watercolour, which light, lightens, doesn't it? Because the water evaporates mm. and all, all that lovely richness that you thought you had is gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you decide that you, it's not your medium and you never do it again. Well, actually, talking about mediums, different, me different type of mediums, but something that you're very well known for is um, adding beeswax to your paint. Um, and um, this is another question I got from one of my listeners about the beeswax. Uh, they were asking whether it's, do you use it cold or encaustic, yeah. which is hot, yes. I presume. That's what that means. I had to look that up. But um, so how do you use beeswax? Well, you know, during art school, I used to work, my uh, eldest brother owns a very large apiary. Oh, and so I spent my summers in a white suit with a veil <clears throat> on the west coast of Tasmania robbing beehives of leatherwood honey and then trucking all the boxes back to the factory and watching all that beautiful wax get poured off into it like ingots. They were like gold ingots. Yeah. And just seeing what a beautiful material. And I always thought it'd be nice to use it. And then I learned that, you know, you could add it to oil paint and it gave it a sort of, um, well, gave it bulk that you couldn't afford to buy that much oil paint to get that kind of impasto. So it was kind of a, 
cheap way of getting impasto when when uh, I didn't um, have much money. Oh, right. And then it became so much a part of the way, I mean, I love the way optically it, it influences colour too. So that just became part of my language. Mm. How does it influence colour? Well, it just, it, it sort of gives us kind of an opalescence to, to colour. Mm. It's not a very good word. Um, when oil paint is massively opaque, and this gives it just that little bit of, um, lets the eye or the light enter the paint a little bit further, mm, I think. Mm. And it's, oh. it, it is cold when you add it, isn't it? It's it is. I mean, it's mixed with, um, with stand oil and Demar varnish and solvent. Because you need, beeswax is a very brittle material over time. So you need to um, sort of uh, fortify it with oils and resins to make it structurally more sound. Mm. Well, actually, one of the great um, techniques that you use that I love in, in seeing in your works, and in particular with those works where you have those um, beautiful dark um, trees in the foreground, in, for example, the work, the work that you won the Lloyd Rees Art Prize with, so transitory light. Yes. And you have the beautiful landscape in the background, but with these dark, sort of almost silhouetted trees. Mm. And you've sort of sc scratched in those twigs. Yeah. So it's showing the, the layer underneath. Mm. I think that that dates back to um, about 2008. I had, I had to have um, cataract eye surgery. Oh, yeah. Because I had a, a cataract. It wasn't like... Um, you know, an old person's cataract, like milky eyes. I saw a constellation of of images through the let my lens, mm. and I had to have that fixed. But when I came back into the studio for the first time, I had this amazing clarity of vi of, of focus at just at that arm's length, just where your painting is. And I started doing these drawing into wet paint, just for the sheer pleasure of it, really. Mm. And then I thought, well, you know, I can, I'll push this as far. Like, like any, anything, I tend to, you know, explore every possibility before I move on. I'm just, that's my nature. Mm. And so, you know, I experimented with different coloured grounds and then waiting for them to get hard enough uh, and then painting an image over the top and then and the, on the same day drawing through it. And, it's uh, a beautiful yeah, but, effect. <clears throat> I, I think I did get some criticism. Uh, for uh, from one of, one of the, our famous <laughs> newspaper critics for being too self-referential. Oh, what does that I mean? Don't know. <laughs> but I thought, well, okay, I'll back off. Well, no, um, that is very interesting. That is very interesting because I'm I am so interested in how artists react to critics, you know. And uh, it, does it affect, how, did, how does it affect you if you get negative criticism? Oh, well, I think that if it's good criticism, um, I, I listen, yeah. Do you think that, I think was, you'd that be was an idiot. I think you're a fool <laughs> if you don't, sorry. Do you think that was good criticism about the... Oh, well, I think that there's always an element of truth. Um, it's, yeah. you know, I've always got to be careful. I've got to be careful of gimmicks, like everybody else. Um, and I really do. I criticise other artists when they use... Um, processes that I think are a bit gimmicky. How can you tell if it's gimmicky? Oh, well, it just can. 
<laughs> you know, people that put a texture all over their canvases before they paint and then the texture has nothing to do with the image over the top. Mm. I find that annoying. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, so I, and I know that I'm a, vi- I'm a terrible victim of those effects, you know. Uh, and so I, t- I take myself aside and think, you know, analyse why I'm doing it. Because I do believe that, you know, one good thing I got out of my art school education was just to critique everything, to, to, to um, ask questions about why you do this and what does it mean, what references are you making, you know, being really rigorous in, in the way you look at your own work. Mm. Um, do you need a period of time between when you've painted it to be able to see it objectively? Yeah, sometimes, and sometimes I never see it objectively. Like my most favourite paintings, everyone hates. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of artists say that. It's interesting. A lot of artists say, why do they like that one? This is the good one, you know? Well, it's it's just sometimes there there is something in a work that obviously is what I wanted to say that no no one else can see it. Yeah. And uh, often those works are just best for me to keep and use as touchstones in the studio. And uh, this is where, you know, Catherine comes in so handy. Your because, wife? Yes. <laughs> because she's, she's eagle-eyed and it just has an, an intelligent eye mm. and can just pick, she can pick a fraud, you know. And she has an art background as yeah, well. Yeah, she studied painting too. That's actually, so that's a, you really respect her view? Oh, I, tr- I totally, ha- I trust it, yes. Because, I mean, there's no way I could have worked in kind of the isolation that I do. Um, without that um, sounding board. So in a way, the, your, your direction is, is sort of um, affected by that as well? Oh, yes, I can. I mean, I won't say any of them because she'll, <laughs> she'll be really cross if I do, but, yeah, she'd come in and we'll say some <laughs> quite <laughs> brutal things about what's going on in the studio. Yeah. Mm. Um, talking about direction, actually, uh, you had a major survey of your work in 2013, which was... A, brilliant show called Illumination, the Art of Philip Wolfhagen, and it travelled the whole country, went to seven venues. Epic. Yes. (laughs) How did you feel after that? Like, how does an artist, I'm interested in that, how an artist feels when there's been this huge, like, looking back on your work. How do you move forward? Uh, Look, it was exhausting, uh, and I don't, I wouldn't rush into another show like that anytime soon all that reflection self-reflection and uh, I mean I didn't really do any good work for the whole period of time I don't think um, that it was traveling around the, well the the no well particularly particularly when it was being put together I found that you know all my energy was focused on on the show and um, and and questioning and what was what was uh, work that should be you know, you know, working with cur- the curator, you know, mm. trying to decide on what should go in and what uh, what was important, what was not. And I mean, in that in that situation, you can't think um, freely about new work. Yeah, I can imagine that actually. So you'd be preoccupied a bit. Yeah, but yeah. So it's just so good to not be doing that at the moment. Yeah. For instance, I really feel that this last year I've really got back. Well, this year I've really come back to my core interests and, and concerns and passions and, um, and that's a good feeling. Mm. And, what, and what would you say that is? 
at the moment? Um, the the uh, yes, well, that's a difficult one to really sum up. Mm. I mean, I've, I'm passionate about um, nature. Uh, I'm, I'm passionate about gardening, mm. and a great deal I realise about what I see and how I compose. Uh, paintings is based upon the aesthetic decisions I'm making in all my other uh, interests. Yes. Well, and with so the gardening, a, yeah. you, you, it is a huge part of your life, isn't it? Well, it is. It's a, it's, um, it's a kind of antidote. And I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't invite critics into my gar- garden critics. I don't want to be judged. <laughs> well, this, oh, my garden, because I'm, I'm getting, I get enough of that in the art world. <laughs> My mother's a very serious gardener, and I mean that's our way of communicating. Really, is um, about what's flowering, and you know, propagating this and propagating that. But it's also, um, you know, grandparents and aunts. I've grown up in beautiful country gardens that, you know, that I find um, inspiring and and kind of necessary mm. for life. Mm. And so, it was, um, you know, always high on my. Um, agenda to, to sort of create my own garden. And is it? Do, would, is there an element of design in it? I Not mean, really. You... I'm terrible, really. <laughs> I mean, I think I, uh, um, I I just let the garden be itself, and I try not to be too critical of my garden. And mm-hmm. I, um, you know, rather as opposed to say here in the studio, like every move I make, I'm I'm sort of analysing and. and Questioning, whereas in the garden, well, you know, I take risks, I do different things. Mm. Um, I suppose because it's transient. Yes, it's you can never. You think you're on top of things, and um, you know, two weeks later, it's you know, the thing that you love the most is dropped dead, <laughs> <laughs> or uh, you know, there's some noxious weed that sprung up um, out of the blue, and uh, yeah, so it's a it's a, a whole. It's a series of setbacks, mm. you know, and, and advances, of course. Well, it's sort of like, I mean, it's, it's dealing with nature in a different way. Yes, yeah, so you're so out of, uh, you know, there's so little control. Uh, that's the interesting thing. I mean, which is contrary to what most people think about gardens. They, th- they think gardens are sort of um, heavily sort of curated and... Um, and, and manicured is the word, isn't it? Mm. Um, whereas my garden is not like that. Um, you know, it's out of, slightly out of control. And you, you realise that gardens that really um, are only ha- have a life of their, their gardener, because once the gardener's gone, you, then within a month, it's, it's wilderness. So it's a real personal sort of project. It is, it is. People's gardens are fascinating from that angle. It just uh, says so much about them. I mean, uh, um, one thing I inherited from my mother is this, you know, her little vases full of just very interesting uh, rare plants and combinations of things always inspired me, you know. So Mm -hmm. she's not artistic generally but has this real innate sense of of form and colour that is unique. Mm. Well, talking about colour, I just wanted to go back um, to talk about your paintings again because I just realised there's something we didn't talk about and that is the time of day that you are depicting usually. Um, It's usually that sort of twilight period. Um, 
Can you tell me a bit more about that? Um, yeah, so it's always been a recurrent obsession with, with me is that, um, that uh, dusk, that point of twilight, when there's actually a, a, a term, a scientific term to describe it, and it's called the Purkinje shift. And it's when we're shifting from, from uh, cone to rod receptors in the retina. So, you know, the cone, cone receptors are, uh, perceive colour and they're all in the centre. Mm. And the uh, rod um, receptors perceive tone. And so at that point of time when your perception of colour is declining, but your perception of, of tone or weight increases enormously. But the interesting thing is that the actual effect of this shift, I mean, it was well known in, in um, the 19th century uh, as it was called the painter's hour mm. by the English uh, watercolourists. Oh, yeah. um, that, uh, so, you know, it's not, nothing new about this. Right. Uh, but the interesting thing is how colour changes is that um, objects with red in them become tonally darker uh, and, and uh, blue objects become tonally lighter. So they tend to sort of glow in the twilight. Whereas, you know, if I have a, a, a crimson flower in the garden, it will just turn black and mm. recede. Whereas anything um, with, on the blue side of the spectrum actually seems lighter. Is that right? I didn't mm. know that. Um, so, you know, again, looking at the garden at that time of night, you really see it very differently, you know. Those plants with the, with the blue in them really sort of um, pulsate, mm. vibrate. Well, as far as landscape goes, I mean, the, obviously one of the most impactful areas in that time of day is the sky. Um, and I'm going to tell you something now that is, you're going to think is either funny or offensive, but <laughs> after I saw, saw one of your works in the wind one year, this is years ago, I thought, I'm going to go home and I'm going to copy one of those, as yeah. hundreds of other students probably did. Oh, easy. I tell you, it was appalling, of course, but what it taught me, that exercise, was the complexity of colour in your skies. Um, what challenges are there when you're, you know, with that sort of gradation? Ah, yes, it's so fascinating. Um, and I never tire of that, um, the problems that, that are inherent in painting a good cloudscape. Um, because the, the chromatic sort of shift between the, the, the highest part of the sky you know the clouds and then the approaching the horizon is is so different so you know mm. uh, often the clouds overhead are sort of quite warm you know and if you look at a photograph of clouds that really throws you off you know you can have a buff cloud or a or an orange cloud and it just you know never you know if you try painting that looks wrong and, and then as you go towards the horizon it gets cooler and cooler and cooler except for where at the horizon it gets dirty again because of smoke or pollution or atmosphere closer to the land. Mm. So there's always this sort of yellowishness. Now you primarily use a palette knife. What are the benefits of that, do you think, in your sort of work? I think that uh, it keeps my colours really crisp and clean. Um, you know, often I'm dealing with very subtle nuances and, and to, lay them next to one another with a, with a hard edge gives you that difference, mm. quite literally. You can see this is cool, this is warm. 
Uh, whereas you put them on with a brush, it just uh, it's just a blur. And so your eye can't perceive that difference. The other thing is, uh, the thing with painting with a brush for me is I find that um, it's very hard to find my own uh, language, my own visual language. And it's so, I don't know why, I find that I do something and it just looks like a bad uh, year 12 <laughs> Major painter. Work. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And so, so it doesn't yeah. represent you in a way. No, that's exactly right. Whereas the knife, um, you know, is, is certainly my tool and I make my own knives out of old kitchen knives. So they're all very... I oh, do. You know, yeah, they've just got to be right. You yeah. can't go and buy a decent palette knife. <laughs> <laughs> so do you, you use the same one over and over again? Yes, I use, you know, and if it breaks, I just um, go over to the workshop and rivet it back on again. <laughs> Because I love them so much that, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely bereft when, when one breaks that I'm in the middle of a painting. I do always try some, something new. Mm. Every, every year I push something. Mm. Well, some I noticed, um, you know, you have sort of pushed um, more towards abstraction a little bit more uh, in the last few years. Yes, I've always been interested in abstraction, um, but I can never... I can never, you know, leave representation entirely, you know. But I think most of great abstraction isn't really abstraction. If you think of Kandinsky's, they all have have a reference point in the in the world originally. Those marks, those shapes, those motifs, you know that that you know. And I think of you know Mark Rothko. I mean, those fields of colour are, I don't know, they could be. I don't know, paddocks, cloud yeah. paddocks, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, on that point, um, I suppose on the point of meaning, mm -hmm. do you have a sense with each of your works that you do search for a meaning or that you want to put meaning into oh, it? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think, I think the only reason I paint is to try and embody meaning of some kind. And, and really put simply, that's just... Uh, a veneration for the natural world and I want to I want the viewer to feel the same way and to feel moved by what they're looking at and and value what we've you know what we have obviously that has political undertones that I you know I deliberately avoid politicizing my my work but uh, you know that's what that's that's what my agenda is is to um, I mean, these are cl clearly we're looking at these triptychs. Mm. Um, they are altarpieces, you know. They mm. are they're deliberately re referencing religious um, forms of art. Uh, I'm I'm trying to heighten uh, the importance of the motif, which in this case is you know the natural world. So uh, when you say altarpieces, do you mean as far as the, the format that you're using? Yeah, the, why, I mean, why, why would you choose a triptych with a large central panel and two wings? Mm. I mean, that is just mm. clearly a Christian art reference. And also, talking about this triptych, it's very interesting because we're sitting in your studio, we're looking at the far wall, and there is the most beautiful um, painting triptych at the t above 
a larger triptych. So it looks like a study to me. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it is. I, uh, I, it isn't a study in the sense that it's a finished resolved work, but um, I didn't know that I was going to get excited about the image mm. when I painted the little one. Mm. And when I painted the, finished the little one, I got so swept up in it, I thought, I've got to, I've got to do this again. You know, and, and often I'm driven by that just desire to keep painting the motif that I'm obsessed with at the time. Mm. And sometimes it ends up seeing too many of them, quite frankly. But then that's just um, a byproduct of my wanting to paint. Well, there are plenty of artists that, have, that revisit the same theme yeah, over I, and I, over. And that's how it becomes more significant. Mm. By reiterating and reiterating an idea, it becomes either boring or, or significant, one or the other. <laughs> Can we talk a bit about your routine? Um, because I was very surprised when we were walking around the garden and you were saying that sometimes you cannot be in the studio for weeks. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I, I have so many projects I'm always doing. Uh, not just garden or landscaping, but I love building. Um, you know, for instance, I built this studio that we're sitting in over a long period of time, whilst I had another studio, obviously. And I've got a number of projects on at the moment that, uh, you know, that I'm, you know, planning for. That don't involve painting. That don't involve painting. Right. I think it's, well, I think the, apart from the fact, I'm just making excuses for myself now. <laughs> Um, uh, for health reasons, it's not possible for me to paint, you know, all day long, every day. I just, my lungs can't cope. Mm. So I find that that uh, break necessary. And I also think that it's be beneficial for the work because when I come back into the studio, I, I go off in a different direction rather than just plodding along mm. and going at, digging over the same ground. At the end of the day, you know, you've got to ask yourself why, you know, what, what good am I doing? Mm. Am well, I don't I just, think every you know, artist has that in You know, I sometimes think that being an artist is a pretty selfish enterprise, that, you know, I lock myself away and just do what I want. Mm. Um, it, that may be perceived that way, uh, I think, you know, from the outside. So I feel kind of duty to... to do something useful for the uh, for the greater good, if you like. I think sometimes you feel guilty. Well, one feels guilty because they enjoy it. Yeah, well, that's, that that is mm. true. Well, Philip, one thing I have enjoyed is meeting you today and having this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Maria. I've really enjoyed it. What a great artist. It was such a pleasure meeting Philip Wolfhagen. You can also go to the website for details of upcoming shows. We also mentioned in the interview that Philip was represented by Philip Bacon Galleries in Brisbane, but he's also represented by Bet Gallery in Tasmania and Dominic Mersch Gallery in Sydney. If you're new to the podcast, Talking With Painters is also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter where I post what's coming up on the podcast, um, details of upcoming shows of artists who've been on the podcast, opening night videos and other short video interviews. I also have a YouTube channel where there are over 100 videos, mostly of artists in their studios, so check that out if you haven't already. Just search Talking With Painters on YouTube. 
And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can head over to Apple Podcasts or iTunes as Apple Podcasts used to be known and leave a rating and review, which is the best way to get the podcast out to more people. Thank you so much to those of you who have done that already. There are some lovely words written over there and I'm really feeling the love. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. I always like sad music and minor keys, yeah. you know. I find it more, I don't know, uh, I don't know, more conducive to, to feeling than but feeling happy all the time.